This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, and today is part two of my conversation with Locke Kelly on pointers to open-hearted awareness. Locke Kelly is a meditation teacher, psychotherapist, author, and founder of the Open-Hearted Awareness Institute. A graduate of Columbia University, Locke is a licensed psychotherapist and has been teaching seminars and practicing awareness psychotherapy in New York City for 25 years. He's also collaborated with neuroscientists at Yale, the University of Pennsylvania, and NYU to study awareness training's effects on enhancing compassion and well-being. With Sounds True, Locke Kelly has just released a new book and a companion audio series called Shift into Freedom, The Science and Practice of open-hearted awareness. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Locke and I spoke about how to unhook from our identification with thought-based knowing and shift to what Locke calls awake awareness. Locke also took us through three main doorways for making this shift, using sensation, vision, and hearing to move into an open sense of non-conceptual knowing. Finally, Locke talked about waking up, waking in, and waking out, and how we can understand this awakening process as the next stage in human development. Here's my conversation, part two, on pointers to open-hearted awareness with Locke Kelly. Locke, you and I had a previous conversation, Pointers to Open-Hearted Awareness, and I'm so pleased to be able to have a second part to our conversation where we can clarify some things and and go a bit deeper. So it's a great joy to be with you. Welcome. Thank you, Tammy. It's really wonderful to be here and uh, continue our conversation. Your new book is called Shift into Freedom. And so to begin, I'd love for you to clarify for our listeners, what is this shift? We're shifting from what to what? Yes, so uh, I would say that the shift uh, is from a kind of thought-based, chattering mind, or what's often called ego-centeredness, or that small sense of self that we all know, the one that often feels like a judge or a commentator that becomes us and that has a basis of fear and worry and is, you know, caught in the past and projecting identity and worries into the future. So that pattern, what I call in one sense ego identification, but in another way what I call it is the mini-me, we're shifting out of this mini-being and this thought-based way of knowing which loops around itself and creates a small sense of self that when we shift out of it, uh, we have an immediate relief is what most people report. But perhaps even more important is that we not just to shift shift out of it into emptiness, meaning negative emptiness, meaning uh, a gap of not knowing, but shift through the gap of not knowing to the freedom of a new kind of knowing that is empty and awake and alive and spacious and ultimately embodied and loving. 
Now, it's interesting that you bring up this idea of the mini-me, because I think a lot of people have that experience, that there's like a, a yeah. little version of themselves living inside their head, something like that. And so where does this yeah. sense of the mini-me come from that so many of us have? Well, I mean, in some ways, I, I was so interested myself in that exact question that I spent, you know, a lot of time both studying, but particularly looking within and playing with how does this pattern form? How does it relax? How do I let go? How do I just rest and let it dissolve? And then watching it reform so that what it seems to me, and, and one of the main reasons I wrote this book is to kind of make it as simple as possible and put it in a really even a developmental uh, perspective, which normalizes it. It's, uh, it seems to be a looping pattern of thought and ego function that happens, uh, starts happening when we're very young. Uh, the psychological word is interestingly self-awareness, which just means thinking about thinking. So a young child, you know, two and a half years old starts to be aware that I'm a subject and an object in the world. So, so then that ability to say, oh, I shouldn't do that. I, you know, oh, I feel like touching the stove. I better not. What's wrong with you? You shouldn't do that. Starts to split us into two parts, the kind of actions or functions of the ego. And then secondly, this uh, commentator, judge, um, sense of a little me almost like driving the car or the vehicle of our body and even personality. Well, then it seems like the big question is, so this mini me develops, but you're describing it as a pattern of thought that's looping around. Is it not something real living inside of me? It's just some sort of fictional creation? Well, it's interesting because it's funny because that's one of the <clears throat> the misunderstandings in in a lot of discussion is, is it real? No, it's not real, but it's actually really happening. <laughs> in other words, it's not real, meaning there's not an actual little me in there. It's just a pattern of thinking, but that doesn't mean there's no ego identification because there is because it feels like it's real so it feels like it's real and it we're operating from it however it's not real in the sense that it doesn't have to be there because it's actually just made of a combination of uh functions thinking and uh kind of survival program of the body and when thinking and uh, judging and survival program relax or unhook or deconstruct, then they remain available, but they're no longer the center of identity. They're just, you know, thought becomes uh, a tool or, you know, useful part of us rather than the center of who we are. Now, in your book, Shift into Freedom, you describe that there are three main ways that we can see through this ego identification, if you will, right. or make this shift. And in the book, you offer many, many different pointers that build on these three different ways. And I thought it would be very, very helpful for our listeners if we could go through these three different ways of, you could say, making this shift out of the mini-me into what you call awake awareness. So here's the first one that you teach in the book, unhooking and dropping into the body. So I'm wondering if you can take us through this. How do we unhook from our thought-based identification and drop into the body? Yeah, yeah so... The amazing thing is it, it is simple, but not always easy the first time. So I just want to speak, you know, to the listeners and just say that 
Uh, I often say, even though you don't know how to do it or what's unhooking or where it's unhooking from or how could you unhook because you're not actually doing it, just give it a try, like riding a bicycle. And, you know, sometimes it takes a couple of uh, attempts, but no big deal. You just start again. So uh, with that said, it's simply a feeling of uh, as if all your senses are on and as you're listening to us talking, you're attending from your thinking mind to what is he saying? Am I understanding this? What are we about to do? And so awareness is identified or attached with thought. So if you just feel as if awareness could unhook or let go or step back from thought and then just feel down into your chin and then become aware of your throat from within and then feel as if awareness is just gently dropping and knowing your upper torso directly from within your upper body. So just simply resting, unhooking, dropping, knowing directly so that you're not looking down from thought to know what you're feeling from within and you're not looking up to thought to check. There's kind of an intelligence and a knowing of uh, awareness and a kind of effervescent aliveness of sensation from within. And you'll notice immediately by the unhooking that there is the awareness is now what's knowing, but thought has now moved into the background or is less central. Now, one of the questions, Locke, that we received from a listener to the first conversation we had on pointers to open-hearted awareness was, Locke keeps talking about this knowing that's happening, <laughs> that's not yeah. thought-based knowing, but is some kind of yeah. non-conceptual knowing. Uh, and I noticed in the book, Shift into Freedom, you call it a not knowing that knows. So help our listeners understand when you use this word knowing from inside the body, we're inside, we've dropped in, but yes. we're knowing. What kind of knowing is that? Right. Well, I mean, this is, this is really the, the big leap. I talk about some of the non-conceptual ways of knowing that are, uh, have been discovered in Western psychology. Um, uh, such as a, the adaptive unconscious uh, and particularly uh, the flow state, which I think many people know. And that is an experience that many people may have had where you actually are highly functioning in the midst of your life, but you're not referring to thought. You, thought is operating on a functional level, but you feel very open, very present, very connected to what you're doing, creative, related, and free of the mini-me, so that you're in a flow. And so that, that's the kind of knowing. It's a knowing, the awareness know is knowing uh, as what is often called the source of mind or wisdom mind, or it's a, you could use the word alertness, you know, as the first feeling of it. You feel alert or awake, or clear, and simplicity, or fresh, clarity. Some people use light, clear light. But there's some way that you could use thought, but you don't have to use thought just to be. And this, so this, you know, you could use the word knowing or intelligence, but it's not about information. That's the key. The key is it, that information is being processed, just like when you're walking down the street, your information about how to walk, you're not thinking about how to walk. 
So it's not as if you didn't think how to walk when you learned to walk, but now thought has taken a secondary role and the primary way of knowing is non-conceptual, alert, or what's often called awake. Now, the other feedback I got about this word unhooking was, you know, yes. when Locke uses the word unhooking, you're going to unhook from a yes. thought-based way of knowing the world. He makes it sound so easy, like, you know, unhooking, <laughs> you know, a fish off of a hook, you know, okay, and the fish is off, just like that. And that's not my experience. It's not that easy to just, quote, unquote, unhook. So what would you say to that person? I would say that that tends to be the, the experience until you experience it, until you get the feel for it. And then when you do, it's like, uh, it is like tying your shoe or unhooking a fish. Like the first time you unhook a fish, here's this fish, unhook it. And people who have done that will say, oh, it's hard. How do you get this out of the mouth? You know, once you learn it, it is, it, is, it is that simple for most people. It is once you've learned how to tie your shoes, once you've learned how to unhook a fish, once you've learned, learned how to unhook awareness, it is as simple and obviously a little more profound. <laughs> but but that, that's what the whole approach, that's what the book, that's what particularly the uh, audio uh, CD is about is leading you through step by step uh, to have the direct experience of unhooking. Um, so you can't just to say the reason we can't do it is we don't know how to do it and we can't uh, remain the doer and we can't use thought to unhook. So you actually have to almost just intuitively do it the way you would, um, you know, get on a bicycle and say, okay, I'm going to balance. Here we go. One, two, three. And then you're balancing. Now, one more thing about this unhooking. I think it's such a useful term. I really like it. And I'm, I'm wondering, yeah. was there like a breakthrough moment when you got, oh, it's unhooking, like when that word and that image came to you? Yes, I mean, I, I, I remember actually I was working at uh, at Brooklyn Mental Health Clinic as a, as a uh, psychotherapist in an outpatient clinic with mostly clients who lived in halfway houses and had major diagnoses uh, and would come into the clinic and I would do sessions with them. And one day it was so snowy and rainy at the same time that uh, people didn't come in. It was like a two-day storm. And so I was sitting there in my office looking out of the window, and I just started to, with my eyes open, just started to, to feel how awareness and thought came together and attached. So, so some people could do this right now. It's kind of unusual when you get a feel for it. It's, if you let awareness identify with thought, with think, the thinker, creating a thinker, creating an observer, creating a judge, creating a monitor, a thinker, and then just unhook and open to the space in which sound is coming and going. And now have awareness come back and identify with thought and whatever's happening and start to look to thought and from thought and identify and hook back up and, you know, identify and attach and then just be that, feel that experience of being this little mini me when you're attached, identified, and then unhook and drop below your neck. Let awareness unhook, know your throat directly, know your chest, know your upper body directly from within. And then usually by the third time I say, okay, go back and, and attach again or hook back. They go, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I've, I, I get it now. That is painful. 
right? So you get a you know, sense of, of that. So that's, that's kind of what I did, is I started to play with that. You know, the, the word is a modern word for what, you know, Buddhism and most, you know, the yoga sutras, you know, talk about, you know, chitta vritti, the, the movement of the mind that you're identified with or attached to. I think even Pema Chodron uses hooked as being hooked, but I don't think she uses unhooked. So the being attached, identified, and then unhooking is disidentifying, detaching, letting go, surrendering. Uh, and so it's just an experiential, very experiential. You can also slide out. You just don't want to stretch because you can actually... If you identify the thought, you can actually stretch thought from your mind. You can stretch down and be aware of a sensation in your body, but you're still kind of looking from your mind. So you want to really find that way of uh, non-attachment through detaching. Now, one more question about this unhooking and, sure. dr and dropping into the body. Tell me a little bit more about the dropping into the body and how that is helpful in terms of yeah. opening to awake awareness. Yeah. So, um, I mean, in terms of kind of navigating our own consciousness, uh, awareness is usually identified with thinking and then also seeing particularly. Those are the two strongest senses. In Buddhism, thinking is considered the sixth sense. So if thinking is the sixth sense, what does thinking report to? It reports to awake awareness as the source of mind. So when we unhook from thought and come into the body, we're coming into kind of a subtle body presence, or you could say, we're returning to our senses. So I think it's a lot of what yoga is trying to do, a lot of what chanting is trying to do by saying, Om. And in fact, you know, when watching your breath at your belly or at your chest rising and falling, except when you do those practices, you're maintaining a center in your everyday mind which is why you can't focus and you keep losing attention and have to return. As soon as awareness, which is already permeating our whole field of consciousness, you know, and there's, you know, research that shows that the entire body is part of the knowing brain, you know, that they're you know, certainly going down the spinal column and having parts in the stomach and, and, there's a lot of research about the physiological, but mainly I'm, 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 I'm focused on what is the experience, that when you, when you experience this, regardless of how it's being done, because that's not philosophically as interesting as when you unhook awareness and come into the body, you are in, embodied, you're in what's called subtle body, and which is similar to subtle mind, which is a mindfulness observer. So we're not embodied yet. We're just dropped out of uh, thinking and seeing as predominant. So coming down there is kind of a transition uh, to being able then to unhook again and open to uh, a more spacious awareness. And then eventually we return from spacious awareness to include uh, thoughts, feelings, and sensation and feel an embodied presence, but it's very different uh, because it has a field of interconnectedness with others and it has a feeling of spacious, boundless ground, as well as being fully knowing your body directly from within. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to take us, Locke, to the second yeah. main way in your book, Shift into Freedom, that you help people make this shift from thought-based knowing to non-conceptual knowing or the world of awake awareness, which is shifting to panoramic 
awareness. Oh, yeah. Show us how to yeah. do that. How do we shift to panoramic <laughs> awareness? Okay, well, panoramic awareness is, is <clears throat> one of the, you know, again, it's, it's funny, but with these practices, as I have said to a number of people, that it, I find it easier for people to learn these than to learn mindfulness meditation. But I find that each of these doorways, dropping into the body, opening panoramic awareness, opening uh, through hearing to space, uh, or going directly to space, uh, I would say 80% of even beginners can get one of those doors and get a sense of what I'm hooking and direct experience of non-conceptual awareness is like. But many people find one of the doors doesn't work so well, but another one does. So this one is a way of what I often call returning your eyes to their natural state. So in some ways, we tend to experience seeing as if it's like our hands, as if if you were to look at an object in the room and just focus on it. It's almost as if you're going out to look at it like you're touching it, like, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Almost as if you're going out of yourself to focus. If I am aware of the object, as if it moves from an eye to an object. But, so one of the first pointers is that seeing is more like hearing. We know that hearing sounds on the physical level come from outside. Vibrations happen through space. They vibrate our eardrums and then come to us. So hearing is receiving, and similarly, seeing is receiving. Light reflects off of objects and comes to our eyes, and then it can go to our brains, get labeled for a second, and then it can go immediately, the information can go to this spacious awareness or open-hearted awareness. So just feel that shift in that way. What is it like when seeing is receiving? That's really huge. That's a very big shift. It's a very big shift, right? And that'll, that by itself is a huge pointer and a simple pointer, which a lot of these are. And the, the, your eyes, what would you say? Your eyes relax? What else happens? There's more of a sense of a whole field around me. Like yeah. I'm, I'm in a field. There's not as much looking at particulars, but more being like in a, right. uh, just a visual soup. Yes. And yet you could respond if you needed to, to something that happened, if you needed to focus on a pen or pick up a pen or something. But it changes your whole way, your, your brain, your awareness. So the combination of awareness, eyes, and brain have, has shifted, has unhooked from its normal kind of developmental trained pattern. And in a moment, it can kind of unhook or shift into its really natural state because it is receiving just like hearing. Hmm. Now, I'm curious again how, if there was a moment when this really lit up for you and you got it, this different way of working with the visual field. I mean, a lot of it, and, and that's just the first point that we can do, you know, there's a couple more that go with, with that. But a lot of it was, was playing in, you know, playing with all of this. And often if, if I went kind of found a way to go all the way to a kind of open-heartedness, then I would back it up, you know, or kind of reverse engineer everything to say, all right, let's close down and now open up. And I kept playing with, oh, my good, I could live like that, or I could do this. Now, how do I do that, and how do I do that? Or how do I train to remain in this? What is it that takes me out? What is it that prevents me from going in? And once I'm here, how do I remain? And, you know, there's often a lot of uh, talk about when you let go of the initial doer, or ego identity, that then I think there's a tendency for people to be very passive. Well, then you just have to let everything be as it is. And that's part of it, is letting go, letting be, 
But there's also kind of a, in order to live from this, there's a dance that happens where there's a new local awareness that is not the old doer, but it's interacting, receiving part of the field. It's like you start to feel like you're a wave arising in the ocean of awareness, and so is everyone else. So there's some way that you're separate, some way that you're empty, some way that you're interconnected, some way that you're everywhere, some way that you're nowhere, and some way that you're here. And so then kind of playing with that, um, you know, consciousness or awareness shows itself to itself is, a, is, I guess, the way I would say it. It kind of started to show itself to the what I call local, the local wave of awareness. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you said there was more to panoramic awareness yeah. that we could explore together, so let's do it. Okay, so the, the next part is, is kind of a version of what's sometimes called sky-gazing in one of the uh, Tibetan Buddhist practices where you would normally go to a place apart in the world, usually a mountaintop where you have a very big sky, but really all you need is your peripheral vision and about an arm's length of space in front of you, or maybe less, I don't know. Uh, so so that simply um, what we're going to do is we're going to open up peripheral vision. And interestingly, when we open up peripheral vision, it actually has nothing to do with moving your eyes. So your eyes will just remain, you know, relaxed, almost as if they're being held from below, like uh, resting in the socket and then just having a soft gaze in front of you, feeling like there's a ease. And then instead of looking at the wall or the next object, just look almost as if you were to put your hand up in front and then drop your hand. So just look at the space in front of you. So objectless, contentless, just not pinpointing. And then... As, as you begin to open your peripheral vision, you'll see that what's moving is awareness. It's not your eyes. So you're not crossing your not eyes. You're not opening your eyes. So just gently, either looking straight ahead or a little bit up, either one, begin to open your peripheral vision. Feel yourself grounded in your, on your chair or your couch. Feel the space around you. And as you open your peripheral vision to the left or right, just be gentle. Take your time. And you can even breathe in and smile as you begin to open your peripheral vision equally left and right. And again, just relaxed and smile and alert. And just as your awareness starts to open to both sides, just let awareness, as it comes to the side, continue to unhook from seeing and just begin to, the awareness continue to open around being aware of the sounds that are moving through space, to your ears, so awareness continues around behind your back to the space in which sounds are coming and going there. So you have this feeling of 360-degree panoramic openness. Do you feel like you're open to the space all around until you feel like you can open to the wall or as if your awareness opens until it finds the awareness that's already aware and looking back from this spacious awareness toward your thoughts, feelings, and sensations. So the 
inquiry is, am I aware of the spacious awareness or is the spacious awareness where I am, is the spacious awareness aware of thoughts, feelings, and sensations that felt like they were the center of me just moments ago? So then feeling that awareness has your back, almost feeling the awareness behind your back is also aware within you, embodied from head to toe, and then the awareness is kind of looking out of your heart, interconnected to all things in front of you. You feel like there's a field of awareness in front, within, behind, all around. You're grounded in the boundless ground and also in your body and feel that you're equally aware inside and out without effort or neither inside or out as if there's a kind of a field of continuous awareness that's inside and out but you don't have to alternate going out, going in. And just in accepting everything and welcoming all experience and thoughts, emotions, just reorienting. And just letting be not efforting I have to say Locke I love these practices that you offer I yeah. I love them and when you say that for some people they're more readily accessible even than a mindfulness training program. I guess I have a question yep. about that because a lot of people would say, oh, you need to do a concentration-based practice, a mindfulness practice, have a direct object of mindfulness. You need to do that first and then later maybe you'll develop a taste and a capacity for the kinds of pointers that Locke's offering. But it sounds like you don't believe that. No. I mean, it's it's you know, and, and certainly, you know, one of my teachers, Minzy Rivershay, has some quotes about that that says, you know, that when you recognize your awake nature immediately and directly, it's already calm and, uh, and alert and clear, so there's no need to calm, calm your chattering mind. So that's my experience. My experience is, and the, this approach is that you immediately will get the same effects that are important, which are calming and focusing. But as you as you experience, you're not focusing in a one-pointed way that is going out to grab something, and you're not focusing from the chattering mind. You're focusing from spacious embodied awareness, which is already calm and alert. And so... You have the foundation of, you know, shamatha and vipassana, and then you can see the contents are not who you are, but they're not not who you are. They're part of you. And uh, especially, I just feel like people in, you know, modern or contemporary culture have done the most of the preliminary practices around educational development, ethical development, uh, physical development that often are the yogic and um, you know paths of relationship and right you know right work and right you know they're in the midst of those kinds of development certainly by early adulthood or midlife uh, you know people are ready to uh, and that you know ready to shift into um, this naturally awake 
uh, awareness and they don't have time to go to a monastery to do the preliminary practices. And they have a hard time doing preliminary practices because I think for most contemporary people, our minds are so sharp and so fast, it's very hard to calm, calm down the chattering mind as the first stage and to develop a meditative witness, which is actually just a temporary or early stage of observer. So that can take so long that if it's possible to assume we have um, the ability to shift into uh, the next stage, which is kind of, instead of starting with deliberate mindfulness, starting with effortless mindfulness and heart mindfulness, um, then all the attributes and the benefits of you know, deliberate mindfulness are immediately available. And it's, it seems... Uh, it seems seems like a, a good contemporary approach because it's very simple and it doesn't have a lot of religious or uh, even energy practices or even uh, guru practices, meaning that uh, it's a natural stage of human development and can be described and taught um, and is very available. Okay, let's move to the third main way. And then in this conversation, you offered a fourth, so we're going to have to get there too. So let's oh, keep yeah. going. But uh, the third main way of shifting from thought-based knowing to awake awareness is shifting from hearing, using the hearing to shift to spacious awareness. Right. Yes. So, you know, as you see, the the... the these doorways are using, you know, three different senses, um, shifting into sensation or the body, shifting into seeing, and then unhooking awareness from the body and unhooking from seeing. And then the third one is using hearing. So um, they're kind of uh, transitional uh, doorways uh, to, uh, to shift. And the main, the main, thing to all of them is actually recognizing what are we shifting into. So this is the freedom of what, you know, is really the freedom from suffering. You know, that's what the word shift into freedom. The freedom is really from, is the freedom from suffering and freedom uh, to uh, feel joy, compassion, and well-being and interconnectedness, that, that they are blocked by this attachment or identification, which is a traditional way of talking about it, and uh, it creates a dissatisfaction. So when you unhook from the little mini-me, you take care of a certain dissatisfaction, just drops away, and you recognize an awareness that can function in the world. You don't have to be in a monastery or cave. And then you go into kind of a flow state and discover some natural qualities of well-being and love that you don't have to create or develop, but they're kind of natural bodhicitta, they're kind of naturally who, you know, who we are underneath it all. So, so this, so this door is the door of the ear. So, um, so, you know, again, just to start, it's like, you know, almost like sometimes I call it the Columbo approach. It's like, da, 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 da. oh, one more thing. Uh, just unhook awareness from thought and have it come to your ear. You know, it's just like, in other words, you can't, like, get too nervous or like, here we go. Okay, how am I going to do it? I don't know. Let's try. Ah! So, so you just, as if, you, you know, it's just eventually when you do it, you'll do it. Uh, you feel like all your senses are on and you're listening to us talking and there's a sense of uh, awareness is attached or identified with thinking as it's trying to understand what I'm saying and then simply let awareness move from thinking uh, and focus on either one or both of your ears in the small area of just hearing. So neither focused on 
the hearer or what is being heard, unhealth awareness, come to one of the, or both of your ears, just hearing, awareness in a small area of sensation or vibration. And just as awareness can focus in a very small area and you feel the relief of focusing on thought, looking to thought, now awareness can unhook or open to the space all around in which sound is coming and going. So let awareness open to the bigger space, become interested not just in sounds that are moving, but the space in which they're moving. So let awareness mingle, become interested in space, open to space until space is aware, until you're aware of space and aware from space. Objectless, contentless, timeless, boundless awareness that's aware of itself without referring to thought or the senses. Just awareness that's spacious. So again, looking to see whether you're aware of spacious awareness or actually you're resting as spacious awareness, which is aware of thoughts, feelings, and sensations happening within your body or remaining open, just becoming aware from spacious awareness. And then as you do, notice the kind of new feeling of connecting to your whole body and particularly your heart mind so that when you when your spacious awareness comes back and is embodied awareness notice that you don't have to go up to thought but there's kind of a a feeling like you're either in your whole body equally or your center is more this heart space in the middle of your chest from which there's a feeling of some kind of knowing that isn't informational. And so what does this open-hearted awareness know to be true to feel into that? What do you notice? Anything? I feel a, just a tremendous sense of openness when you said that. Yeah. Just felt. And do you feel endless you feel and the open? Being, the kind of. Yeah. Do you feel the gra- grounded in being? Yeah, I do. Yeah, kind of an okayness. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what people often report, you know that they feel okay or there's a sense of well-being or a sense of, you know, freedom from shame, freedom from fear, freedom from, you know, feeling there's something wrong with them, kind of a feeling of unconditional love or okayness, sense of, you know, yeah, that kind of coming together of, yeah, so help me understand one more time, Locke, why we work with first sensation in door number one and then vision in yeah. door number two and now hearing. What's the importance of sensation, vision, hearing to help us make this leaping off into this very open, spacious awareness? I mean, they're not, they're just kind of transitional doorways from coming back to the senses and then going to space. You can actually, as I mentioned, you could just shift right into space. From I even did a little of that, just be aware of 
awareness identified with thought and then open to the space in which sound is coming and going. So you can go right to, to that spacious awareness. Then the importance then is that space, <laughs> the key transition, which is something, again, that you kind of can't explain, but most people fairly quickly can, you know, it shows up, is that you realize that awareness discovers an awareness that's already aware. And you're not doing it. And that awareness is aware of itself, first and foremost, as timeless, boundless, contentless awareness. And so that awareness that's discovered is often called, you know, higher power or spirit or um, awake awareness or rikpa or turiya in... uh, and that is the foundation uh, that now when that is realized that it's not only spacious and aware of itself, but it's also not separate from your individuality or that it's not other than form. So that form is emptiness, and then that's that first move, and then emptiness is form. So then you come back and feel with the ground of empty emptiness that's awake is the key. Not emptiness that's absence, but awake, aware, no thingness is aware from within as form, as aliveness embodied, unique um, relative reality is they're not two. That that's really what in Buddhism non duality means is not just the pure awareness but the two truths that ultimate reality is awareness, aware of itself, empty and awake, but it also is not separate or not other than this form, this person, that personality contents, this human life and experience that's arising through bliss and emptiness, through compassion and emptiness. And that's the freedom. That's the real freedom that starts to arise. Freedom of creativity and relatedness from discovering this new ground of being. Now, Locke, you've mentioned some of the teachers that you've studied with. I know you studied with Tibetan Buddhist teachers. You've spent a lot of time working with Adyashanti and, and other teachers. And yet, it seems that your presentation, the practice of open-hearted awareness, the way you present it, has a type of, I would say, kind of original presentation to how you're bringing it forward. So I'm curious about that, the original part of the presentation and kind of having the courage to do that, not work specifically within one tradition. And tell me more about that. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's not a, you know, that's not an easy, easy dance. I mean, that's, you know, the, it comes from, um, you know, the, the original kind of pointing out that happened from, you know, different people both having some, you know, glimpses through, uh, you know, period in my college years where I had a glimpse um, after severe losses when my father died of cancer. And then my grandmother who lived with us died soon after. And then my best friend from the hockey team died in a car accident. And feeling very, you know, overwhelmed and depressed. And and then one night it just lifted in a certain way. And then just saying, wow, something else is here. This is, this is amazing. And then having glimpses like that. Um, but then I guess through this um, uh, one uh, kind of Chinese doctor, Dr. Chan in New York, who pointed me to a secret of the golden flower, turning awareness back to notice itself, and then Toka Urban, um, <clears throat> also doing the same thing, realizing, okay, it's equally available in each of us as each of us. It's here. It's simple. It's not convoluted. It's not bells and whistles. It's not fireworks. It's not complex. 
The other is complex. This is not complex. So what did they, what were the principles of what they did? So I kind of brought my, you know, kind of American pragmatism to it and, you know, growing up in kind of both contemporary scientific culture as well as having kind of a spiritual heart uh, kind of put them together and said, okay, what's going on? How does this come together? What is, what is the same in these principles? How does this work? What does it feel like? And then I went inside and started playing with it and simplifying it and eventually got a feeling like I could, I, I, and then checking it out with teachers, this right, what do you think about this? Look at this. By doing this, then I'm doing that. Then, the, you know, getting kind of the nod from most of them uh, and saying, yeah, that's great. Uh, even when I described this basically process in fairly good detail for the first time to Ming Rinpoche in a, you know, loft apartment in New York City over an hour and a half period, he was just listening and kept telling, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? And then he just said at the end, okay, I'd like you to teach Sutra Mahamudra. And I said, what? He said, yes, Sutra Mahamudra, that's what I'd like you to teach. I said, well, what do you mean? I'm... He said, yeah, that's it. So, so getting that kind of support and then, you know, reading Adi Shanti, he was kind of doing his own um, version from a very true place. I started to realize, well, we've got to find it for ourselves. And that in some ways what the teachers were pointing to is, you know, find your own inner teacher. And then I just felt like, well, this is as good a good thing to do with my life as anything else is, you know, why wouldn't I do this if this was giving me so much uh, freedom? Um, you know, let me just find a way to tell people, come on in the pool. The water's great. And find a way to help and find a way that's simple, as simple and clear and yet grounded in, you know, wisdom tradition. So I kind of did the academic, the journey to India, the checking it out with teachers, the internal uh, testing, the testing with, and then finally testing with students. And so that's, uh, and then taking a lot of years to write this book to kind of put it into you know, more formal form. Now, now, there's one more area I want to make sure that we touch on, Locke, which is when you offer this teaching on the practice of open-hearted awareness, you talk about it as an adult development model, if you will. This is available to us as the next stage. This coming into awake awareness could be the next stage in yeah. human development. And then you describe that there's waking up, waking in, and waking out. And, and I wonder if you can explain that for our listeners, waking up, in, and out. Yes. So, yeah, so that's kind of the process. So, you know, as that questioner had asked, like, well, you know, Locke's talking about unhooking, how could it be that easy? And in some ways, it is, it is, it is simple, but not initially easy, like learning to tie your shoe. But when you're able to do it, it's a small glimpse. It's a small glimpse of the already awake reality. So that's one of the big differences between kind of gradual practice and this kind of direct recognition, gradual unfolding. So there's direct glimpses, small glimpses many times is the, one of the ways I have, you know, heard it said in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. So that's something I use, small glimpses many times. And then uh, there's a, uh, a recognition that this is freedom, that this is freedom from and then a freedom to be is kind of realization that you realize, oh, this isn't an experience I'm having, but this is who I am to which experience is happening. And that's, that's realization. So that's waking up is waking up out of ego identification and thought-based knowing. Uh, and then waking up to awareness as the foundation is still waking up. And then that awareness, realizing that it's uh, none other than form, none other than relative reality, is, is what's sometimes called uh, co-emergent wisdom, that 
uh, is waking in. So waking up out, but then we're not stopping as some systems do in uh, pure awareness as the final goal or transcendence or, you know, getting out of this human body or seeing we're not this, we're only awareness. That that's the first waking up, but then there's waking in to discover that there's not two things going on, that who we are in this precious human birth is is amazing and can be remarkable as we wake into kind of an embodied presence and this discovery of this heart-mind, this non-conceptual way of knowing that's not thought-based. And then this sense of this opening uh, of waking out to other people, waking out to relationships and creativity and waking out to living from uh, this awareness-based, open-hearted awareness so that it's actually a new operating system that we're not having meditative experiences and then, uh, you know, and then going back to living from egoic um, life and then go meditate and then come back. It's actually a shift of identity and the waking out is, is the beginning to live in kind of a flow state from, from this um, well-being and emptiness that's appearing as form without a lot of the uh, dissatisfaction. You know, you have an interesting quote in the book. You can wake up, but still not grow up. And, you know, when I read that, I thought of a lot of people that I've met who (laughs) seem like they've had deep experiences of waking up, but, you know, I've witnessed situations where they don't seem to be acting in very grown-up ways. So help me understand that paradox that seems to be very evident. Yes. I mean, I, th- I think it's evident, too. I mean, again, some some folks in the, you know, non-dual world, you know, separate the, the two and call it crazy wisdom or some kind of you can't understand somebody is awake or, you know, they can do anything they want or uh, some sense of, um, you know, awakening is beyond all human form. But I, I don't feel that's true. I feel awakening is a very particular way of relieving suffering and finding a foundation of identity and knowing. But then there's equal um, feeling of uh, including, uh, you know, the human responsibility and integrity and learning how to relate and create and be willing to admit mistakes and uh, continue to grow and realize that you know, the world is not perfect and no human being is perfect. It's, you know, awakeness is already awake. It doesn't need to be developed. But relative reality is just by realizing that doesn't mean you're, you know, you go into ethical relativism and um, and not bring the two together. Because in some ways, awakening, full awakening, which is what I'm pointing to with the waking up you know, waking in, waking out, uh, starts to include, you know, these lines and levels of development. Uh, And when you, if you just wake up in the first level, you feel like you're, you're beyond it all, that you're relieved, everything's a play, it's a lila, it's, you know, nothing, it's all the same. And that's really just like an initial insight. And that's not, you know, awakening continues to unfold from there. When you wake into the heart, um, you know, you just start to see everyone as yourself. And there's a tremendous love and respect and integrity. And you see, you know, that that's, you You know, you're not perfect and you, you know, apologize and make mistakes. And But you're always like seeing the other as yourself. And then you start, you know, you 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 don't, you don't, it's harder to act out if you're, if you're um, starting to grow up as well. So, I mean, I would say the other side too, which is interesting is that um, having worked with a lot of very talented, um, highly developed people 
in therapy in New York and people have had everything together in their life. They've, you know, got all the ducks in a row. They've, you know, and then they come and they say, I'm so miserable. I don't know what it is. So in some ways you can't grow up all the way unless you wake up. You can't, you can wake up and not grow up, but you can also grow up only to a certain level without shifting identity. Because the first level of growing up is only uh, an ego identity that can only go so far. And that ego identity can't really bear a full emotional life, can't uh, deal with uh, being intimate and emotional and, and grow to the next stage of basic human development. You know, Locke, as a final question, I want to talk to you some about the publication of Shift into Freedom. We've done this two-part conversation on pointers to open-hearted awareness, in part to celebrate the launch of this book and audio series that I know has been a long time coming. And I'm curious to know, here we are, we're celebrating the launch of Shift into Freedom. What does that feel like for you? <laughs> it feels like a labor of love with equal parts labor and love. <laughs> it feels like a relief and, uh, you know, both a celebration and also kind of an anticipation. Like, I'm just standing here going like, who knows what's next? Let's see. You know, it's just kind of like an openness because it's kind of a launching pad, meaning it's just the next phase of my life will be now that I have kind of written this down, I feel like I want to unpack it and help people put it into their lives. And I don't know exactly, <clears throat> I haven't you know made a big plan about how to do that or the best way to do it, but I feel like, you know, it will show itself to me. So it feels, it feels really exciting. It feels um, like a, um, like I was able to get something <laughs> Un, un, undescribable, indescribable into some series of pointers, and I think the especially the that the most accessible thing is the is the CD or the audio. Is that you could not read the book, but you could listen to the audio like three times. If you went through one, two, three, you would find some amazing. It would take you through the essence of the book. And then the book is meant to be uh, kind of a reference for like, what just happened? Well, wait a minute. What, and then you go to the book and you start reading like, oh, I see. That's what's happening to me. I'm going through that and I'm shifted. Well, that makes sense. Okay, it's not such a big deal. This isn't, you know, I get a little disoriented, but now I'm reoriented. So this is great. I've been speaking with Locke Kelly. Locke, thank you so much. He's the author of a new book and an audio series called Shift into Freedom, The Science and Practice of Open-Hearted Awareness, a book that has received a tremendous set of endorsements. People are calling it a threshold book, packed with teachings and pointers and practices, as well as Locke mentioned the audio series, Shift into Freedom. Locke, thank you so much. Thank you, Tammy. I'm so happy to be with Sounds True and, and having a team to help uh, get this out and uh, share it with everyone. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.